Turn with me today to Hosea chapter 1. Hosea chapter 1. And we'll be looking at verses 10 through the first verse in chapter 2. Hosea chapter 1, starting in verse 10. You know, reconciliation is hard work. It's difficult to restore a relationship that has been broken uh, by whatever means. Maybe it was uh, trust broken. Maybe it was uh, words said in anger or impulsively. Uh, Some reason for hatred that has sprung up and maybe festered for years. It is tough to undo that work. This work of restoring a relationship is so difficult because it asks much of each party, right? Each party must be willing to seek forgiveness and to seek to forgive. Each person must be willing to forgive and be forgiven. They must be willing to compromise and settle claims that they may legitimately have, right? So so when animosity arises, there may be very legitimate reasons for that animosity, And so to get reconciliation, to restore that relationship, uh, it may mean being okay that you were offended and forgiving that offense. It's hard work reconciling people, but it's impossible. It's an impossible work when we try to reconcile God and man. To offend the Holy One is to put oneself at enmity with him, to put yourself as an enemy of his, to be at war with him. And there is nothing that will appease him but justice. Except that God condescends to us. God pursues us in love, in grace, though we have no reason to hope that at all. And as we walk through the book of Hosea, we see a people who have made themselves enemies of God. And in response, God will treat them as such. You want to be my enemy? Fine, you'll be my enemy. But we also see the deep, deep love of God in passages such as we come to today. We find passages wherein God promises reconciliation, restoration. And so today I want us to see in our passage that God's judgment is meted out in his grace towards his people. So let us look at the scripture today out of the book of Hosea chapter 1, starting in verse 10. And this is the word of the Lord. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and and to your sisters, you have received mercy. And this is the word of the Lord. The book of Hosea opens with God speaking to his servant Hosea and telling him that his own family is going to become an object lesson for the northern kingdom of Israel, for the people in the northern kingdom. And if you remember, the northern kingdom is a place of rank idolatry. They relied much upon alliances with foreign nations. So so one of the great errors that they made is rather than trusting in God, they trusted in their alliances. They said, if we can make an alliance with this powerful nation, no other nation will come up against us. 
They also relied much on uh, gaining the favor of false gods. They said if we can appease uh, the balls, the, the Ashtoreth, if we can appease these false gods, we'll have fertility in the land, we'll have growth in the land, we'll be prosperous, and all will be well. All this in contradiction to the word of God and in violation of the covenant God made with them. God made a covenant between himself and the people of Israel, and they said, uh, we, we want to seek elsewhere. The people of God were to be the people of God, not the people of Baal. And as each of the children of Hosea were named, we find a worsening judgment. We see that in verses uh, 1 through 9, right? As each of the children are named, we find a worsening judgment. In the naming of the child Jezreel, God promises a day of slaughter, a day of defeat uh, for his people and especially for the leaders of his people. In the next naming, we have Lo Ruhama. We find God merciless in his prosecuting of his prostituting people. And in the third child, Lo Ami, we find the worst of words to the people of God. That is that they are not the people of God. God says, you call, you call yourself my people and that, that I'm your God, but you're not my people and I'm not your God. So be done with it. God says, you will be left to yourselves. And this is where we pick it back up as we come to verse 10. We find the continuation of this discussion about Loami, the, the child Loami. And we pick it back up in verse 10. And let's consider first innumerable, innumerable in verse 10. Yet, our, our passage opens, it says yet or however. God says to the people that the chilling word in verse 9 uh, is not the end of the story. Because he says yet. However, here we find that God avers that his people will be his people and that the promise that was made to Abraham will be fulfilled. Look at that. He says, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. God had made a covenant with Abraham back in the book of Genesis. And I want us to look at one of those uh, versions of that covenant in Genesis 13 verses 14 to 17 Genesis 13 14 to 17 the Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are northward and southward and eastward and westward for all the land that you see I will give to you <laughs> to you and to your offspring forever listen to this I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Right? God promises Abraham a progeny, a people. And he says they will be innumerable. Can you count the dust of the earth? I can't even count the dust in my house. Right? The dust of the earth, it's, it's innumerable. Or the sands in the sea. We're talking about an innumerable amount. And as God has promised to the people destruction, devastation, exile, rejection. Now we see here in verse 10. That the promise made to Abraham is not void. It's not undone. 
and instead it's going to be reestablished, right? You shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. Because we might think, as we have already read through, even in this brief part, as as the short time we've been in the book of Hosea, that we might think that God is done with his people forever, right? This, the, the low army judgment that God will not be their God and they will not be his people. We can take that to mean that God is done with the people of Israel entirely, that that's it. That's over. It's over with. And that the promise to Abraham is revoked, but it cannot be so. And God says to the people, you will be innumerable. And moreover, look at this in verse 10. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, what? Children of the living God. They will instead be called children of the living God. God herein promises the restoration of his children. He promises that there is a day of reconciliation coming. There is a day of blessing and growth, even though there must yet be a day of devastation and slaughter. All right, go up to verse 4 when we see the naming of Jezreel. He says, for in just a little while, I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Right? That's a day of judgment, devastation, slaughter. Uh, what, what God is referencing there is when Jehu slaughtered King Ahab and all of his family. The valley of Jezreel filled with blood on the day of Jehu. When he commenced that slaughter and God says, just like that happened to King Ahab and his family, it's going to happen to you, O people of Israel. But this promise ultimately, right? So, so when God says here, and in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. This promise is not ultimately found in a glorious expansion of the Jewish nation yet to be. No, rather we find that God has begun to fulfill the covenant he made with Abraham and this promise here he makes in Hosea 1.10, not merely with those who are genealogically related to Abraham, but rather, and more simply, he speaks of Christians who are called children of a living God. Christians. Romans 8 tells us that if we have been saved, we have been adopted into the family of God. We have become heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. We have become children of the living God. And just to push back there, we sometimes hear in our culture this evidence that we are all God's children. And that is not true. We're not all God's children. Those who are in Christ are God's children. We are all God's creatures. We can say that. We are all God's creatures. He has made us all. We were all created. If we, are, if we are a person, if we are human, we are created in the image of God. But that does not mean that we are all God's children. Those who are God's children are those who have been saved by the blood of Christ. So we speak of Christians here. That Ultimately, this, uh, this sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered, has in view... All those who would be saved, who would be brought into the family of Abraham by faith. 
Paul, in making his argument about the sovereignty of God and election, anticipates an objection. And so I'd encourage you to turn to Romans chapter 9. Keep a finger in Hosea 1, because we will be back. But Romans chapter 9. Paul is making an extended argument about this issue of election. And in Romans 9.19, he anticipates an objection because he says, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Undoubtedly, there will be those when, when they read what Paul has written about how God has chosen some to be saved and some not to be saved, that they will object to that. And they will say, well, if God has chosen this and I haven't been chosen to be saved, well, how is that my fault? It's not my fault I'm not chosen to be saved, right? It's not my fault. I can't do anything about it if it's all all God's work. Paul knows there will be those who object. And he anticipates some will say, again, but if that is true, then I can't be blamed for not believing the gospel. To which Paul responds with a metaphor, and he uses the metaphor of the potter and the clay. And the clay doesn't say to the potter, well, I want to be a bull. Why are you making me a plate? I want to be a bull. Make me into a a bull. I don't want to be a plate. No, that's, that's foolishness, right? The clay doesn't say anything. The potter determines sovereignly what is going to happen with that lump of clay. And then he goes on. And he says in Romans 9, 22 to 26, and I give this because it links back to our passage here. So I'm trying to give you the information to why I say that ultimately what we find fulfilled in Hosea 1.10 is not just in the Jewish nation, but in us as Christians, because Paul tells us that. So Romans 9, 22 to 26, what if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even as us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, There they will be called sons of the living God. Paul writes that there are those prepared for wrath to show forth the terrifying power that is our God. He is almighty and he is holy and righteous and just. And in like manner, there are vessels of mercy whose glorious state is contrasted by those vessels of wrath. Like dark and light are contrasted to one another, right? And notice verse 24. These vessels of mercy are not those who are just Jews genealogically, children of Abraham genealogically. Right? He says, even of us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And then he quotes part from our passage here to make the point. As indeed he says in Hosea, Those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. What Paul tells us about this passage is that 
this passage in Hosea is that its ultimate fulfillment is not found in a Jewish nation that's been restored. No, God has much bigger designs for his people. The people of God are much more than just the Jewish people. It includes the Gentiles, all who believe by faith. God promises here that there are people who were once not my people who will become children of the living God. The people of God are innumerable because they are made from every tribe, tongue, and nation. As it says in the book of Revelation, right? Who is it that sings around the throne? People from every tribe, tongue, and nation. By the way, could you imagine the sound of that singing that we that we get get that picture of right it sounds like thunder it sounds like roaring waters it will be worship but to go back to that objection that Paul is dealing in in Romans 9 uh, I'll ask how are the children of God made so so who is it that determines who becomes a children uh, a child of the living God I go to John 1, verses 12 to 13. John 1, 12 to 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Right? What John, the gospel writer, tells us, right, is that all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his character, who he was, the truth of him, as, as the Son of God, God the Father gave them the right to become the children of God. And these children of the living God were born not because of blood relation, not because they were of a genealogical descent that in, induced them to such. And I understand we may not deal with this issue of Abraham so much today for us, but just because your father and mother are believers, just because your grandfather and grandmother are believers, just because you have family members who are believers does not mean that you by de facto uh, blood relation are somehow included in that. It is up to each individual person to confess belief in Christ Jesus. That is it, and that is it alone. So it's not by blood relation. It's not because husband and wife came together, right? It's not because of the flesh. It's not because a man wanted it. It's not because of the will of man. Then how is someone become a child of God? Because of God. If you are a Christian, it is because God has adopted you into his family. He has washed you with the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Your salvation is all of God's work and none of your own. And if you want to be a Christian, if you want to be part of the innumerable children of the living God, you need but confess and believe. Paul tells us in Romans 10, 9 to 11, Romans 10, 9 to 11, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. 
If you trust in God, you will find him utterly faithful, even though there is nothing in you that would induce him to be faithful towards you. He is faithful because that is who he is. He is loving because that is who he is. He is gracious and merciful, not on whim, not on fancy, not from time to time, but because that is who he is. The people who were not my people would find themselves children of the living God and innumerable people who would be gathered. And that's what I want us to look at next back in Hosea chapter one. And that from verse 11, gathered the people of God gathered. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together. God promises to his people not only that they would be reconciled unto him, but they would be also reconciled to one another. And again, here we have to comment upon the split up between the people of God. And it can be hard for us to always see it, but, but if you go back into the Old Testament history, if you go back into um, the book of Judges, and even as you get into uh, the reign of King Saul, and even King David, there's always this tension of tribal split, right? There, there's tension between the tribes of Israel. There were 12 tribes, and just like the brothers they descended from, there was often turmoil, intrigue, and upset between them. And remember, of course, that between the sons of Jacob, uh, there was such animosity that they took one of their brothers, beat him up, threw him in a pit, and then sold him off into slavery and then pretended, oh, dad, sorry, a wild animal must have got him. That was their brother. You hate to think what they do to their enemy. And as you read through the book of Genesis, right, you find out some of what they do to their enemy, and it's not good either. The Genesis for the two kingdoms, however, so as, as we come to this tribal tension, and as they unite under king, they unite under King David, and they unite under King Solomon. And under King Solomon, there's really this golden age for the, for the united kingdom of the people of Israel. But the genesis for the split kingdom, the northern tribes and the single southern tribe of Judah, was actually born out of the sin of Solomon. Uh, if you want, turn to 1 Kings 11, because we'll uh, look at a little bit of that there. 1 Kings 11 tells us the, the whole of the story, but uh, it tells us the story of this great, the downfall of this great King Solomon, right? It began with marriage to women from foreign nations. And in order to appease them and understand it wasn't just to appease them, King Solomon didn't start building shrines to false gods just to appease them. It was also to appease his flesh. So in order to appease them, he started to worship false gods alongside of them. And this is really remarkable when you think, what is Solomon credited with? Building the glorious temple to the Lord God. And now he's starting to build shrines to false gods, to false nothings. To which God responds, picking up in verse 19 of first, or verse 9, sorry, of 1 Kings 11, 1 Kings 11, verse 9. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. So let's pause there and comment. Not only did God give him 
the glorious task of building the temple, but God actually appeared to Solomon twice. Did Solomon have any reason to not believe that the Lord was God? That God was the Lord? In any which way, any combination of things that we want to say that there. Now, God appeared to him twice and granted him blessings. Picking up back in verse 10. And had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servants. Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hands of your son. However, I will not tear all away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. Right, this is really a, a chilling word from God. Because understand that the mercy that God shows to Solomon and to his son, Rehoboam, is only because of David. Only because of David. Only because his presence was glorious in Jerusalem. That's it. But here we have the schism. The schism is begun. And when Solomon dies and his son, Rash Rehoboam, takes to the throne, he listens to his buddies over the elders who were giving better wisdom. He listens to his buddies, and as a result, he is harsh towards the people. And the northern tribes say, you know what? We don't need this. We're more numerous in number. We don't need you. Who made you king over us? Bye. And so the northern kingdom is established. And this is in accord with the word of God, right? This is what God had said would happen. And through the years, the people of God lived in the split kingdom. But they should have been united. They should have been united in worship, right? They, they were all called as the people of God. They were the children of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And they should have been united one to another. But the... There was this schism. They let things fester. And more than that, at the very outset of the northern kingdom, they started worshiping false idols. They set up a, a opposing place of worship, a, a place to try and rival Jerusalem. They set their hearts on false gods, false idols, and false worship, which is why Hosea is called to the ministry he's called to. Which is why Hosea is called as prophet unto the northern kingdom to call out their sins that they may be restored to God. And though it would never work and the judgment of God would be carried out, they could never say we were never warned. They may have never listened, but they were duly warned. Here in verse 11 though, we find the promise of united future, right? The children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head. This is something that we see a promise uh, that is attested to in the other prophets. 
Ezekiel 37, verses 21 to 23 is one instance of this. Ezekiel 37, 21 to 23. Ezekiel 37, 21 to 23. Then say to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone and will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king over them all. And they shall be no longer two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from their backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. Listen to this. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. Those who were to be called not my people to whom God said, I am not your God. They shall be called God's people and God shall be their God. And here in Hosea 1.11, we find a promise of a unity under a single ruler. That's not something they experienced. Those whom Hosea was preaching to had never experienced a unified Israel. That they would return from exile, right? As we see that. And they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. There will be revival, new life in the land. And notice here that when, when the text says, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, this is not indicative of they're going to come together and do whatever they want, that they're going to have free reign to just say, okay, I, want, I choose you. But what it does mean is that they're going to come together and they're going to be so united in spirit that they will willingly choose whom God chooses. They'll say, this is God's man for us. Yes, absolutely. That's who we want to lead us to be head over us. And then we also find interesting here, that name again, Jezreel, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. And as we looked earlier, right, call his name Jezreel in verse 4, for in just a little while I'll punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I'll put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. That doesn't sound very positive, right, if we think of it that way. But uh, as I mentioned last week, Jezreel can be uh, translated, that name can mean two things. The first is something like God who scatters. And that's certainly the, the meaning that we see in verse uh, 4 and 5. God who scatters. God is going to scatter the people of Israel. But the name can also mean God sows or God who sows. And sowing is a much more positive thing. And we see that sense here in the right. They shall come up, the, go up from the land or they shall come up from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel because God has sown his people into the land and now they're sprouting up in new life. We get the sense here that there will be life and vitality in the promised land once more. A people are going to rise from the dirt. Right. And they're going to be more more numerous than the dust of the earth, than the dirt of the earth. Dead bones will raise to newness of life. And here again, we find a connection with what Paul writes in the book of Romans. And this from Romans 11. Romans 11, verses 25 to 27. Romans eleven twenty-five to 27. Paul writes, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel 
until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. The people of God are innumerable, and there is coming a day when they will all be gathered under their one leader, Jesus Christ. Paul says that this is a mystery, that right now there's a partial hardening. Not all the Jewish people believe that Jesus is the Christ. They're still waiting for a Messiah that has already come. There is coming a day, though, when they will acknowledge Christ and so be saved. God has sown the seeds of the gospel into the land, and out of those seeds are rising a glorious people of, of God from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And God has entrusted us with the message of reconciliation. He has called us to go and to preach this message. We are called to till the land, sow the seed, water it, and see God give the growth. That's your job. And yes, that's you. That's your job. So be busy about it. For great will be the day of Jezreel. Not a day of slaughter, but a day of sowing and of growth, vitality and new life. And what glory awaits the people of God on that day. And the more marvelous word of Hosea to the people who are not my people is this. Reversed. Let's look at that in verse 1 of chapter 2, reversed. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. The Lord God reverses what he has said, where before he promised the utter rejection of the people, here now he promises restoration, right? They who were named Lo Ruama, no mercy, and Lo Ami, not my people, are now named Ruama and Ami, mercy and people. And thus the names are fully reversed, right? Just in the verse before, we see how Jezreel, it becomes God who scatters, becomes God who sows. What is promised in destruction is now given unto life. And here too, the other two names of the children of Hosea are reversed. The people who are rejected become a people restored. The people who would suffer under the merciless punishment of God would once more taste of his mercy. And this, beloved, is the message of Christ. To those who are not the people of God, he calls sons and daughters. To those who are to receive no mercy, but only the fires of hell, he shows mercy and gives them the kingdom of heaven. To those who would be scattered to the winds, destroyed and defeated, he sows in the land that they would grow into life. So what do we do with this message of Hosea? We need to ask, is this message of restoration for us, for me? Friend, it can be. You can be called the son or the daughter of the living God, but it will never be because you were owed it, because you worked hard for it, or because you deserved it. You will never deserve the mercy, grace, or love of God. You deserve only His wrath. For like the Israelites of old, you only ever prove yourself the child of your father, the evil one. 
You prove by your thoughts and words and deeds that you are unholy and unrighteous and thus unworthy of eternal life. You prove this in your sinning, your transgressing of the commands of God. You prove this when you think that a quick apology will fix everything. When you say, oh God, I'm sorry, forgive me for that. Let me go on and do it again. No, the consequence of sin is death. And what you deserve is eternal judgment. Make no mistake, unless there is an atoning sacrifice on your behalf, unless another intercedes and pays your debt, you have no hope of anything in these verses. No one does. But that's the thing. There was another. There was one who came and on the tree bore the wrath of God for his people's sins. Christ Jesus is that man. And I implore you, friend, look to Christ Jesus today. Quit your excuses. Quit thinking you'll make it on your own terms. Quit thinking you have another day. Quit thinking that you like your disobedience a little too much to give it up. Because the things you think bring you pleasure now are but a slow-acting poison. And be assured that the bite of that poison is deadly. And it will get you much quicker than you think. Turn from your sins and turn to God. In other words, repent. Repent and believe the good news that Christ Jesus came for sinners. And in his death and resurrection secured for you a future, eternal life. The name, child of God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let this passage encourage you today to trust in Christ all the more. Because you once were not the people of God. You were not my people and God was not your God. The only hope you had was in a swift death by a merciless judge. But God in his mercy, because of the great love with which he loved you, made you alive together with Christ. Words cannot express the wondrous thing that has been done on your behalf. And as you go from our time together here, you go as a people reconciled, reconciled to God. I don't know all the sins that you have engaged in this week. I don't know if your heart is cold towards the blessed Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know what you're thinking right now, but I know this. If you are in Christ Jesus, wake up and draw close to the warmth of the Savior. Say to one another, Ami, Ruama, you're the people of God. You have received mercy even though you don't deserve it. Christ has saved your soul from death. The Spirit has brought you into the family of God. The Father has given Christ Jesus. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Believe it. It's God's word. Let's pray. And great Father in heaven, Lord, we cannot express thanks enough for the work of grace and mercy that you have done on our behalf, that we who were not your people, and Father God, how of all the peoples of the earth, we, we can say that all the more. Uh, we're not even of, of descendants of Abraham by genealogy. 
Father, we were not your people and we had never any hope of being your people save your gracious act towards us in Christ. Father God, how we lived in the death of our sins. And Father, now forgive us for returning to them as a dog returns to its vomit. How despicable and detestable is such wantonness as to forget what you have saved us from and saved us to. Lord God, have mercy yet upon us. Father of mercy, be merciful to us. God of all grace, be gracious unto us. And Father, help us to grasp this reality that we who you have saved, we who have confessed faith in Christ Jesus, we are your people. We are not first and foremost Americans. We are first and foremost citizens, the King of heaven. He who rules over all, heaven and earth, And we, we look up to your prince, the prince of peace. He to whom every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth shall bow before. And every tongue confess that he is indeed Lord. Father, we do that willingly now. And we are so grateful for the eyes to see, the ears to hear, and the hearts and minds to, to behold, to believe, and to confess, Jesus is Lord. But Father, we know also that there are those who are not your people, who are not children of the living God. Father, we pray, Lord God, we pray, that you would have mercy upon them. And Lord, that you would send your spirit to wake them up, to give them new life, that they may be born again into this kingdom. And Father, not suffer the eternal judgment to come. Father, we lift up to you their names right now before you in heaven and pray, Lord God, intercede on their behalf that they would believe, God, friends and family members, loved ones, acquaintances, and co-workers. Father God, we pray for those who are so blinded to the truth of your gospel, the truth of your word, who think themselves in Christ, yet the very evidence of their life says everything different. Father, those to whom Jesus will say on that day, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. Father God, we pray that you would have mercy upon them, that they would believe in Christ Jesus truly. And that calling him Lord is not just some token that they hope will get them out of trouble, but that they believe it with every fiber of their being. God have mercy. Father, and give us boldness to proclaim this message 
unto others. God, give us boldness not to shy away from the truth of it. Father, forgive us for our fear of man. And Lord, help us to fear you. God, we thank you for this word of encouragement unto your people. Through the, through the mouth, through the pen of Hosea. Oh Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. And so we pray this in the name of he who is our blessed Lord and Savior. He, your only begotten Son, Jesus the Christ. Amen.